0: God willing, is that this week we should deal with chapter 14 and then we'll have a break um, as we lead up to Christmas and we'll look at the uh, first appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ and the relevance of that to us today and then in the new year hopefully go back uh, to look in chapter 15 as we look at the reality of the resurrection and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess the first thing we can't help but recognise we're confronted with as we come into this chapter is prophecy and tongues. They are repeated throughout the chapter. It's it's very much um, what the chapter is all about. Um, Why the focus on these two? We've looked as we've looked in the preceding chapters at the number of gifts that are mentioned in Scripture, the wide range of them, and now Paul seems to just home in on these two. I would suggest the reason is very clear as we read this and knowing what we know from the rest of the letter of the State of the Church at Corinth, and the way Paul writes here about these two it seems that their preoccupation is with the tongues their focus is on the tongues and Paul wants to shift that to a focus on prophecy at least in terms of what happens in the church when the church comes together that he sees there the need for being the building up of one another rather than what we as an individual experience or how we worship God as an individual already said as we've looked at this that prophecy as I understand scripture speaking of prophecy in in the terms of the gifts and what we have here is not so much standing up uh, certainly not standing up and adding to what we now have as the completed canon of scripture that uh, we reject completely we believe this is all sufficient and this is the revealed will of God we don't add to that in any sense but rather the speaking forth of God's truth the, the public proclamation of what God says that's what the prophet did he speaks out what God has said uh, to those who will hear him and that's I'm sure what is spoken of here and certainly that's the position held by the church down through the centuries but what about the tongues well I've already argued back in chapter 13 that I believe there in those opening verses there where it talks of tongues of angels it, Paul is using hyperbole I, I've not uh, yet found scripture or, or indeed I've not found anyone applying scripture that has got faith to literally move mountains or uh, knows all mysteries and all knowledge uh, and indeed I don't believe scripture calls us to give all that we possess to the poor and choose martyrdom over life and no more do I believe that it's saying there that we talk in the voices of angels but He's saying that even if we could do that but what is it then once we come into chapter 14 well of course that is a divisive issue within the church and we accept that different people understand it different ways and some will see it one way and some will see it another way the way I see it is this I believe he's talking here about human languages let me give my reasons why and if you come to a different conclusion that's your prerogative that's fine my reasons would be first this that the word used here glosser is exactly the same word that Luke uses in Acts 2 exactly the same word where he talks of them speaking in tongues there and we know there that it's human languages they're listed for us we have a a listing of the languages that the people Uh, were native to that they heard Peter speaking it and it's the same word that's used here and the general rule is that if the same word is used elsewhere in scripture you give it the same meaning unless the text specifically requires a different one that would be my first reason, my second reason would be this, it clearly talks about the need for an interpreter, verses 5, 13 27, 28 and again the, the natural use of the word interpreter is one who knows two languages and speaks between them Uh, we have some here this morning I guess who are very good in more than one language Um, and we would say they've got the ability to interpret and Paul calls for that in the church the third reason would be that there are very clearly references in here to human languages without debate verse 10 to 11 undoubtedly there are all sorts of languages in the world yet none of them is without meaning if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying I'm a foreigner to the speaker and he is a foreigner to me verse 21 in the law it is written through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people but even then they will not listen to me says the Lord now of course Paul could use two words in two different ways in the same passage of scripture but I would suggest it's unlikely surely that would just bring confusion why would he switch backwards and forwards between two different meanings of the same words and my last reason would be this that if you look historically until 1901 there would be no division within the church it was understood that this referred to human languages and if you pick up any commentator before 1901 that's what they will say you can look in Matthew Henry, Barnes, Gill, James Fawcett, Brown and many others and they will not consider that there's any other possible interpretation, it just means human languages some would argue that it was Hebrew that there were those, although Hebrew was now pretty much a dead language but the Jews still used it in their uh, praying and in their reading of scripture and some argue that it's Hebrew that he's referring to, that there are those sort of spiritual elites in the church that are trying to introduce that and use it. Others say no it's uh, all human languages, a whole range of human languages but human languages nonetheless. Now I'm not suggesting that we believe that because Christian tradition gives us that but I find it encouraging that that's the case rather than the contrary so what then is the purpose of this gift and Paul answers it doesn't he in verses 21 to 22 in the law it is written through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people but even then they will not listen to me says the Lord tongues then are a sign not for believers but from believers, how do we understand that? especially when further down he clearly speaks against using tongues because it will confuse unbelievers and they will conclude that they're all mad and yet here in verses 21-22 he says that tongues are given for unbelievers not for believers let's go back to Pentecost what happened there? why there did they speak in tongues? well I guess the immediate response that we're likely to come up is well so that people could understand what he was saying there were people there from all these different nations and of course there were but almost certainly they would have understood the Jewish language that's what they come to the temple to do to worship God so it's unlikely that they wouldn't have understood the Jewish language certainly it would have captured, caught their attention when Peter stands up and starts speaking and they each hear him speaking in their own language that would have grabbed their attention it had an evangelistic edge to it in that sense without question but that isn't what Paul says here is it he's quoting back from Isaiah and what's he quoting that through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to these people but even then they will not listen to me says the Lord in other words it was God's judgement on the Israelites that because of their rejection of them He woke them up to it by foreign languages being spoken to them. And of course that happened dramatically in fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Israel thought they were immune. We are God's people. No one can touch us. God is for us. We, we, We cannot be defeated. We cannot be destroyed. And there in Jerusalem, in the very heart of their nation, the Babylonian voice was heard and suddenly those peoples realised that God had come in judgement against them and God did not accept them and through the speaking of foreign language, through foreign tongues they were convicted that they were under God's judgement and God's wrath and they were taken away and Paul says that's what it's for to convict the Jews of their rejection of Christ and of course that's exactly what happened at Pentecost wasn't it? There they are in Jerusalem their city with the temple and the temple worship and they're all there praising the Lord as they see it in the right way having destroyed this Jesus Christ and suddenly they're right in the heart of that city Peter starts speaking in all sorts of languages that the others all understood, the Gentiles but to the Jews absolute gibberish here in the centre of what was their place, suddenly God is confronting them and opposing them through foreign language and convicting them that they're wrong. And yet still, says Paul, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And I suggest to you, only if we understand it in that sense, does it then make sense further on down when it talks about if a non-Christian is there, the tongues will confuse them. But can I suggest to you whatever your conclusion you come to about what these tongues are it doesn't change Paul's point in this chapter in any way. What is the point of this chapter? What's this all about? Well you could say well it's all about tongues and prophecy. Well yes it is but that's at the level at which it applies to the Corinthian church. That's the, the working out of it for them because that's where their problem lies. What is the chapter fundamentally about it's about what happens here, isn't it? It's about what happens when the church comes together. Why does the church come together? What is God's purpose in saying, I want you to meet together, as scripture encourages, commands us to do? What is it about? let well, suggest you, the immediate obvious answer we give to that is to worship God. We've already referred to worshipping God many times this morning. That's what we come together for, to worship God. Well, yes, of course, that's right. And there are many ways we do that. We sing his praise, we pray to him, we, in our thinking, magnify him. And indeed, we're supposed to praise God not just in church, but with all of our lives, aren't we? That's the calling of Scripture. Paul's already referred to that back in chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is Paul, even in the most mundane routine aspects of life, just sitting down to eat your food, you should be doing that in a way that glorifies God. I'm writing to the church at Rome, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore in chapter 12 verse 1, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, when we go to work, we're supposed to be worshipping God. When you sit down to your midday food, you're supposed to be worshipping God. And I don't just mean by saying grace. In your conversation this afternoon, you should be worshipping God. In doing your gardening, in doing your evangelism, in doing any and everything, you should be doing it in such a mindset that God is glorified through it. That, says Paul, is our spiritual worship and of course that includes when we're together as a church and there are particular things we can do together that we can't do apart we can't join together in singing if I'm on my own I can still sing in fact I can probably sing louder and freer when I'm on my own because no one else has to listen to me and comment on it but it's not the same as singing together is it and we are to sing songs, hymns and uh, spiritual songs we're supposed to do that that's good, that's part of our worship we pray when we're together. We can pray when we're apart, but it's good to hear each other's prayers and add our amends to it. Of course it is. And Paul in this chapter is not diminishing or taking those things away in any sense. But he does say very clearly that is not primarily what us coming together is about. Now I suggest that might shock a lot of people and a lot of Christians in our generation. That he's saying here there is something more central to what we do than that. And that's why he sees this difference between tongues and prophecy. If it was only about those things, he wouldn't have a point to make here. But he's saying it's not primarily about that, it's about what? It's about building up and strengthening the church. That's what it's about. And my friends, I suggest to you that if if you could go to any country on this earth where Christians are persecuted and there are Christians in prison, isolated from any other believer, they would tell you how they long for fellowship with other believers in God's word. How they long to be able to sit down with other Christians and talk about God and study God together. And that's what God has purposed the church coming together for and you can't escape it in this chapter can you it just runs right through it the building up of the church verse 3 everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening encouragement and comfort he says that's the purpose of it verse 4 he who prophesies edifies the church verse 5 edifying the church verse 6 bringing words of knowledge prophecy instruction verse 9 speaking intelligible words verse 12 building up the church verse 16 so that others can add their amens even to the prayers how can they say amen when you pray if they don't even understand what you've said in the prayer and so Paul can command verse 26 listen to this what then shall we say brothers when you come together everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction a revelation a tongue or interpretation all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church saying that's what it's about and only when we grasp that can we make any sense at all of what he says in verse 19 that in a church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others he's saying that's what it's all for we do live in a generation where some have moved so far away from that that the the study of God's word the instruction the edifying the building up whatever words you want to use for it has just become so marginalised in the service it's become a very individualistic thing about me expressing my praise to God in a company of lots of other people also expressing their praise to God as so though that's what it's primarily all about and of course there's praise for that if there is any Christian here who doesn't spend time every day on their knees worshipping God there's something wrong of course we should be We should be constantly singing out our praise to God. We should constantly be speaking to God, exalting Him, worshipping Him. And it's lovely that we do that as well when we come together. But there's one thing that we can't do when we're on our own that we can do when we're together and that's instruct and build up and help one another. And Paul says that's the purpose of the church meeting together. There's a second purpose it's in verses 23 to 25 just look at those verses there so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in will they not say that you're out of your mind but if an unbeliever or someone comes in who does not under sorry but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying in other words speaking forth the truth of God's word he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare so he will fall down and worship God exclaiming God is really among you you see Paul's first point is that it's to edify and build up the church and his second point is this that if there are unbelievers there surely the desire is that they should be brought in repentance and faith to Christ not conclude that this is a madhouse and go away in disgust And he says, how will that happen? That will happen when what they hear is the truth of God's word being proclaimed that they are sinners, that there is a holy God and that that holy God stands in judgment on them because of their sin and that unless they repent of that and unless they come in faith to Christ they will end up in hell. But Paul says, but when they hear that they'll be convicted by the Holy Spirit and they will exclaim, God is really among you. Why? Because his truth is being spoken forth and the Spirit has convicted them in their heart of the truth of it. Friends, is it possible that there's someone here this morning who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Saviour? I don't believe Paul is here requiring, as some churches have traditionally done, that you have a a service for the building up and edifying of the church maybe Sunday mornings and then a gospel service Sunday evenings which is exclusively for non-Christians and you deal with it in that way but I do believe he's saying quite clearly these should be the two thrusts so is there someone here this morning who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Saviour maybe you've never considered even that you are a sinner and you would say but I'm not I've never murdered anyone I've never raped anyone And yet that's too narrow a definition of sin for God. God's definition of sin is far, far wider than that. It includes as much as a single wrong thought in your head. It it is as small, in inverted commas, as we would see it, as just once seeing a a woman pass by and in your heart thinking, I'd like to have sex with her. Which to the world means nothing, but to God that is sin. It's living in this world, this beautiful world that he's made and getting up every morning without for one moment thinking of worshipping him and praising him and thanking him for it. Without for one moment thinking what does God want me to do with this day but instead deciding what I want to do with it and how I'm going to live it. It's living this life without any reference to him who made it and gave it to you. And God says that he is not unaware of your response. He knows it even as he knows how many hairs are on your head. And he says that he's already passed judgment on it. You stand condemned already according to scripture. But it is not God's desire that he would punish you for it, but that he would be able to forgive you. And he's made a way possible whereby that can happen in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he went to the cross and died on that cross in absolute agony with God the Father unleashing on him God's righteous punishment for the sin of every single human being who will come in repentance and faith to him that he might pardon you because Jesus has paid the price for your sin my friend is it possible there's anyone here this morning who does not know Christ Then, can you see that God is in this place? This is His Word. This is what He says. And by His Spirit, He would challenge you in your heart and your mind to the truth of that and the reality of that. And the response He seeks is that you would fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. That's the second purpose that we come together, says Paul. To build up and strengthen the church to give those who don't know Christ the opportunity of being saved if they're here. Oh, my friend, can I ask a very simple question? How high do you see those two objectives? How high in your thinking is the building up of the church, yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you see that as a big goal or not? You know, there are some, aren't there, who come to Christ, but they never grow after that. They remain babes all their life. Scripture talks against that. Do not be babes. You know, I, I would by now rather feed you meat, but you can't take it. You still need a like a baby's bottle is is the, the picture. Be- because you haven't matured at all. In Cavis this morning we were uh, looking with the older ones um, not at this subject at all. We were we were looking at how we can um, understand what New Testament is teaching the books of the Bible it's the start of a bit, bit we're just doing on the books between uh, sort of Romans and uh, Jude the, the sort of teaching New Testament and we were saying uh, about, uh, we was trying to explain about um, how you said about doing it I said Look, let's just take an example we'll just pick a scripture by random without opening it I'm not advocating this as a way of studying God's word please understand I was just trying to show them that wherever you go the same sort of method applies and we just opened it on Colossians chapter 2 the first five verses And what do we actually find there in the middle of that? My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order they may know the mystery of God namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one will deceive you by fine sounding arguments for though I am absent from you in body I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. That's the goal of the New Testament, isn't it? Every letter you look at, every passage you come to, that the call is that we grow, that we grow strong and we grow firm, that we can stand, that when these plausible arguments come against us, we're not deceived by them, we're not led astray by them, we don't give ear to them, but we say, no, I know what God says. I know where I stand. I've got full assurance how important is that to you can I just ask that first for yourself how high a priority do you give to trying to grow in Christ as you study his word as, as you read Michael referred in his prayer or in his, prayer or in his comments to, to the good books that we've got available to us in our generation in our own language so much the world hasn't got how high a priority is that to you and how high a priority is it to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ that we might all attain unity in the fullness of Christ. How important is the conversion of unbelievers to you? I remember reading in um, um, oh Spurgeon one I've been in trouble and I can't remember his name. Eh? Oh is Spurgeon uh, in Spurgeon? I think it's the Soul Winner when he talks of uh, he concluded. Uh, the service and he was talking to I think it's one of the deacons in the church or one of the people that men in the church after the service and apparently in the middle of the conversation the bloke broke off from him said excuse me I'm, I'll be back in a few minutes and disappeared and it was some minutes before he came back and he said I just had to break off because I saw a woman sitting up uh, in one of the galleries I think it was and he said her countenance was so troubled I just had to go to speak with her and, and he led her to Christ and then he said even while I was doing that he spotted someone else and he went and spoke to them you know, it's, it's, it's at our heart that we're always looking to see whether there's someone who the Spirit is actually contending with who, who, uh, who is, is not just shut and won't listen and is turned away but someone who there is the opportunity of actually intelligently speaking with and reasoning with and showing them the wonder of Christ. How important do we see that in the church? It's so easy to just assume everyone's saved. I mean, oh, they've been coming for 40, 50, 60 Some have been here 80 years. Maybe some have even been here 90 years now. It's a wonderful thing. But do we just make the assumption therefore they must be saved? Are we still concerned to be sure? And those we meet outside every day of the week so finally how do we protect these goals if these goals are so important and they clearly are because that's the whole I don't, I don't believe you can possibly whatever your views on these gifts are, I'll read this chapter without concluding that's the point of what Paul's saying here that the primary place has got to be for the strength and the building up of the church and for the safeguard of unbelievers to come in to actually hear the gospel and have the chance to be saved how do we protect these goals in the church well the first big step to protecting them is to believe that they are the goals of the church when we meet together if we're not convinced of that, if we want to put some other goals in their place, we're never going to protect these goals are we? And sadly that has happened in parts of the church worldwide, we can't conclude otherwise the first thing is we've got to see those as the goals and say I want those to be the goals because that is God's purpose and then we just take a practical approach to safeguard them, that's what Paul does here isn't it? That's what these latter verses are all about How, how do we safeguard them? He says, OK, we, we will put in some rules in place. Firstly, verse 27, only two or three to speak in a tongue in any one service, and then only one at a time, so that the whole church can hear what's said. And for that to happen, obviously, there's going to have to be an interpreter there, he says. So if there's no interpreter, no speaking in tongues. Now, that's a very practical, logical way of approaching it, isn't it? He says for people to be edified they've got to be able to hear for them to hear only one can speak at a time for them to understand someone's got to interpret. So that's necessary. Second prophecy speaking God's word. Well he says it's not enough just that someone says well okay the Lord's given me something to say and stands up and reads a few verses of scripture and says what the Lord shown me through this is and he says no there's got to be a safeguard on that. So again two or three if one uh, one at a time if one wants to say something the one who's already speaking I guess that's preventing going on too long has to stop and the, the, the new one starts but he said but there's got to be there so that those who listen and weigh it up and balance it against the overall teaching of God's word and say yes that is valid or no it's not because otherwise it's just opening a gate to not building up the church but destroying the church and he says let's be clear So I'm not using this as, a, as a, a, a way in to contradict what I said elsewhere about women taking part he says no it's just the men because that's another dimension of how the church functions when it comes together and he says the whole idea is that all should be done in such a way that is what orderly fitting an orderly way why? he's already given us the answer hasn't he? because God is not a God of confusion a God of disorder but a God of peace oh my friends this church was in such a mess wasn't it they were tearing themselves apart they were destroying their brothers and sisters in Christ and Paul's whole focus is to bring it back to what it should be a church that is primarily concerned with each other's spiritual well-being that we might be saved and then that we might then grow to unity in Christ as God's people glorifying God in everything we do, magnifying him, worshipping him, delighting in him and in one another let's sing shall we